This is chapter 100 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week we mark 50 years since a baseball team from Queens went from lovable losers to miracle Mets with Hall of Famer Art Shamsky. We celebrate our 100th episode with one of our favorite thriller writers, Steve Barry, and then we get an overview of how our criminal justice system works from former federal prosecutor Preet Bharara. It's been 50 years since the 1969 Miracle Mets won the World Series. The team has a whole bunch of celebrations planned around the golden anniversary this season, but we're kicking things off a little early with After the Miracle, the lasting brotherhood of the 69 Mets. The book is written by right fielder Art Shamsky and sports writer Eric Sherman, and is a trip down memory lane for the players and fans alike. The duo spoke to our Peter Haskell. Art, tell us about why you wanted to do this book. Well, I, I, uh, I wanted to do a book on the 50th anniversary. It seemed like a natural thing to do. And when I talked about this and, and uh, the things we both agreed upon was we didn't want to do another book about the, the game day-to-day victories or losses, and which has been written about so many times. And the New York Mets and that particular team have been had so many books written about them. And so we wanted to do something different. And I, I, I think we basically just wanted to make it a nostalgia kind of thing, uh, talk about friendship and camaraderie, aging, the whole process. And, and uh, when we decided to, to do it that way, we realized that uh, we had lost 10 guys on that team, and, and, and there was a couple guys who weren't well at the time. And we decided to, to initially make a trip out to California to see Tom Seaver, who at that point had basically, it was a, we were aware that he wasn't going to be traveling anymore, and we wanted to go out there, and, and even though this was the 50th anniversary, we were going to take, so to speak, take the celebration to him. And that's how it all came about. We sat around and talked about it, and the logistics of it were not easy. We had to get, pick some other guys to go with us. We wanted to take some my teammates, and just uh, putting that together and then going out to California and not knowing if Tom was going to feel really good that day to be able to sit down with us. So everything kind of fell into place, and that's really why uh, and how the book came, came to be. There's a certain timeliness now that we've learned that Tom is not traveling. His family put out a statement he's not doing as well as he was. And one of the things about this trip, so the book starts and ends with this trip. Uh, Ron Swoboda, Jerry Kuzman, Butter Harrelson and the two of you, correct? Correct. And one of the things that was striking, we'll talk more about the team as we go through, but there was a, a poignancy and almost a wistfulness. You get the guys back together again, you look back and you say, you know, how much more of our future is there? How many times will we be together? What was that like? Well, that, that was really the basis for doing it. Uh, uh, and, and it turned out... Uh, Right before we went out there, Buddy Harrelson had made people aware that he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. So we really wanted him to go, and putting that together was a little difficult to make sure that he was okay, his family was okay with him going. And then we wanted, um, uh, just because they were available and also because there was personalities that we liked, uh, Kuzman and Swoboda, who... uh, who were characters in their own right, and we wanted them to go out. So that was really about uh, putting it together and, and, and trying to get the right guys. And we had to make sure that they were okay with going out there because they, they had commitments and some health issues too. So, so the beauty of it is that, uh, well, it was a lot of hard work to put it together. And when we got out there, still not knowing if time was going to be well enough for us to s- 
sit down with him uh, and, and reminisce with him. And then ha having that worked out, it just was, it was bittersweet, but a, a remarkable day for all of us because we got a chance to sit down and, and reminisce and tell some lies that we always kind of do and, uh, and uh, talk about things that were so important to us and are still important to us. And, and really, like I said, the book is about just this camaraderie we all had for each other. And, and just getting out to see Tom and, and having him reminisce with the guys was really very, very special. This was May 2017. You were a part of this. What were your impressions watching these guys together? That they were forever young. You know, here they're, they were all in their 70s. And, and um, Tom was having a very good day. We were very lucky. And, what, and Art alluded to it. Right up until the moment we were driving up that hill, to Tom, Tom Seaver's house and his vineyard, which was behind it, we really weren't positive if, if he was going to be up to seeing us, if he was going to have the energy to do it. Well, not only did he have the energy, but he took us out on his vineyard for a couple of hours, and we had lunch after that, and it was just an absolutely perfect day. Now, personally, as someone that's followed the Mets since 1972, uh, my first game was when Seaver almost pitched a no-hitter on the 4th of July in 72. That's what you say. That's what everybody says. I was at that game. <laughs> <laughs> well, imagine some, someone like now. I've written five other books on baseball, a few with the Mets. And, but I've got Jerry Kuzman riding shotgun. I've got Art Swoboda and Harrelson in the back seat in a van. We rented at the airport, and we're driving to Tom Seaver's house. doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> So let's talk about the 69 team. And Seavers is the guy that everybody talks about. I don't want to ask you about him first. What was it about him, and what did he bring to the team? Oh, he was just a great, great pitcher. I mean, he, uh, he uh, not only did he have great stuff, uh, and when I stuff, I mean baseball acumen. He was uh, as good a competitor as, as I played with and against. I got the best of both worlds against Tom. I played against him in my early years when I was with the Cincinnati Reds, and then we were teammates, and I played behind him. But Tom could beat you with his glove and his bat, and, and, and he was a, as good a competitor as I, I'd ever seen. I, there's a stat that I saw recently where, where he, in all the games he started, and uh, was a lot of games, 208 games that he started, he gave up one run or less in seven innings. That's, uh, that's almost unheard of. I mean, uh, one run in seven innings, or one run or less in seven innings. But he was uh, one of the most complete pitchers I ever saw in an era that had great pitchers. I mean, in the mid-60s, you had Koufax and Drysdale and Don Sutton and, and uh, Gaylord Perry and Juan Marichal and Gibson, Gibson yeah, and Carlton <laughs> and Jim Bunning and, and Fergie Jenkins and uh, a lot of great pitchers in the National League. And, and Tom uh, was as good as anybody. And, and uh, you know, the, the game he almost pitched a perfect game has become folklore now. It, it's taken on a life of his own. I, I really believe if he would have pitched a perfect game, it wouldn't have as much publicity as the game that he right. pitched when they gave up one hit with uh, two outs in the ninth inning. But that was a year of things happening uh, for us that uh, all in a positive way. And, and, uh, and just to finish off about Tom Seaver, I, I really believe that history will show it. One of the greatest pitchers ever to pitch in the big leagues. Let's take a step back. The Miracle Mets, they won 100 games in 1969. An expansion team in 62, they won 40 games. In 68, they won 73 games. And if I'm not mistaken, the year before, they won 61. How did this team make such huge strides, 
no free agency. You don't go out and sign Willie Mays and Juan Marichal and Hank Aaron. You build. And you had guys from the outside. How was this team able to make these exponential leaps? Well, I can't take the blame for those early years because I wasn't there. <laughs> but when I got over in 68, it was also Gil Hodges' first year. Tommy Agee was, just joined the team, J.C. Martin, a, a few other players, Al Weiss, a few other guys. And I really believe it was Gil Hodges' uh, wherewithal as a manager, his brilliance as a manager that I think really changed the whole thinking about, uh, about how the Mets played. I remember the first game or the first day in spring training in 1968, my first year there. His he had a meeting with the players and he just basically said, you will not be the same old Mets that you used to be. And right off the bat, uh, I knew that that was not that, that was going to change. He was going to be a, a strong disciplinarian. And although we finished ninth, a half game out of last place that year, you could see improvements. And I think Gil had the uh, ability as a, a manager to be able to get the most out of all his players. And that was the beauty of his managing. He was able to get that guy at the end of the bench to be able to understand that he wasn't going to be playing every day, but he, we, we needed him to come off the bench and contribute. And I think the bottom line is uh, what, we, what happened to us is very simple. We found ways to win close games as opposed to ways to lose close games. And again, I go back to the brilliance of Gil Hodges as a manager and was able to teach us not only how you play on the field, but also how you command yourself off the field. And again, I, I give him credit for, for being the, the catalyst in that whole thing. And then even if you look back in 1969, all the way to middle of August, we were not a terrific team. It was really after that second or third week in August where we still started to play uh, really great baseball. We were unbe unbeatable after that. But you could see the beginnings of it in 68 and really in 69. I think the attitude was much better. And, of course, I think Gil really was the person that really changed everything. You talk a lot about the baseball, which is hugely significant. But one of the things you write about in the book is chemistry. What was the chemistry like on that team? How was it different than other teams you played on? And how did Hodges contribute to that? Well, he platooned in f four positions and sometimes five. Platooned at first base, second base, third base, right field with myself and Ron Svoboda, and sometimes behind the plate with Jerry Grody and J.C. Martin and Duffy Dyer. And Gil was able to get us to accept that. Nobody liked it. It was not a, a, a thing, a, a situation where it was conducive to your long-term career. But Gil was uh, uh, honest looked you right in the eye and talked to you about certain things. And he explained to us that this is the best chance we have to win. And we all accepted it. We all pulled for each other. And I think he was able to get everybody on that team on the same page. It's not easy to do as a manager. You know, you've got 25 personalities, and you really have to deal with certain things. But Gil was a very strong disciplinarian. And when he talked, we listened. And, 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 and there's no doubt we had luck that year. Things happened that, uh, that you can look back on and say, wow, how did that happen? But the reality of it is we were uh, as good as any team in baseball towards the end of that season. And, and I think uh, the, the credit really has to go to Go Hodges and everybody on that team accepting what he wanted you to do. And I think that really is a true legacy of the, the team that's been passed on from generation to generation. Eric, from what you've seen and what you've written about, what is the significance of chemistry as opposed to we've got the best team? Well, I've, I've written books with and about the 86 Mets, and um, that was a very, very different team. The first day of spring training, Dave, Davey Johnson got up in front of the, front of the team and he said, we're not just going to win, we're going to dominate. Um, 
as opposed to the 69 Mets, it was a very different feeling in spring training. You know, th- there was talk that maybe this team could be 500. So very, very different goals, and then uh, very different managers. Art was just alluding to how Gill uh, managed the team not just on the field, but also off. Uh, Davey, you know, you're grown men. You know, you come home when, when, when you want, you do what you want, but when it's game time, you have to be there. Look now, what condition the they were in out. when they came to the park was something else. <laughs> but they did win, and they did dominate, whereas that 69 Mets team, it was miraculous. You know, the Mets, you kind of got the sense in 86 that they were on an upward trend from 84 to 85, and they were a 90-win team, and then they blew it out. So those were the two biggest differences between those two teams. I want to ask you about one of the stories that you write about, which is there's, it's, it's almost a urban legend, it's so, or so it turns out to be. Cleon Jones is playing left field. Killa Hodges walks out there, pulls him out of the game. And so I guess common wisdom is Hodges didn't like the way that Cleon had run after a fly ball, yeah. but there's more to it. Well, you have to set it up. We were getting beat really bad at a doubleheader against Houston, and we had... Before that, we had started to play pretty good baseball, but this particular day we were getting our rear ends kicked in both games of a doubleheader. And I'll never forget this. I was at right field, and uh, Johnny Edwards, who was my teammate with the Reds at one time, and he's at Houston now, hit a little flare down the left field line that went into the corner, and Cleon kind of loafed after it. Um, now, remember this. He had had a bad leg and hurt himself up in Montreal before we came home. And it was a really kind of a damp day that the field was, uh, was, had a lot of water on the field. So Cleon kind of loafed after it, and uh, Johnny Edwards ended up with a, a double at second base. But again, picture the game is almost out of hand at this point. We're getting re- beat really bad. So uh, Gill walked out to, to the mound, and, uh, which I thought you know, was going to the mound. And I remember he would never step on the line at first base. He would always skip over it. And I had really good eyes back then. In right field, I'm looking. He barely missed that line by about a half an inch. And I said, really, that's strange. Gil usually never comes close to it. And he walked out to the pitcher. I forget who the pitcher was. And he walked by the pitcher. And I said, oh, my gosh, what the heck did Buddy do? And then when he walked by Buddy, I said, oh, no. If I was Cleon, I would just turn around and run towards <laughs> that left field bullpen, ask him to open that door and just run because Gil was really a tough, tough guy. But to this day, uh, Cleon always said Gil just came out and said to him, uh, what's going on? How are you feeling? And Cleon said, look down, look at all this water. You know I have a bad leg. And, and to make a long story short, uh, the truth only is known by one person at this point, and that was, that's Cleon. But uh, he's always said that Gil just came out, asked him how he was feeling, pulled him off the field a little bit, tugged at his shirt a little bit, and took him off the field. And whether Gil wanted to make that a message or not, it was a message to everybody. We started playing a lot better after that. And uh, to this day, Cleon said he never said anything bad. He just said, are you okay? What's wrong? And that, this and that. But um, Gil had this way about him. When, it, when he talked to you, it was pretty, uh, if it was serious, it was pretty, uh, pretty serious, put it more with lack of a better word. And I think all of us got a message that day, and it was really a, a turning point in the season. So how did you take that? How did it resonate with the ball club? Well, I think all of us felt like uh, Gil was not going to tolerate this kind of play. 
I mean, again, I can't emphasize how bad we looked that day at a doubleheader against Houston. And, and, and you know, when, when they were walking off the field, I said, I, I just can't imagine what the clubhouse is going to be in the, after the game. And I don't remember Gil ever saying anything to us after the game, but, but we all knew Gil by some of the subtle things that he would do and say. And he wasn't a guy that had a lot of meetings. He, he, was, he was just stern in his, his, his uh, voice and his actions. And I think, I think all of us, to a man, kind of got the message that uh, we needed to play better. And uh, as it turned out, we did. And, uh, and um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was certainly, for me, something I remember, and, and, and Cleon has always defended it as Gil just wanting to know how I was feeling, so I take him at his word, but, uh, but uh, he's the only person that knows the truth now, so, so uh, I assume it's, it's, it's correct. So if I'm not mistaken, Cleon Jones hit 340 that year. Was it relevant that Hodges was picking on maybe the best hitter on the team? You know, that's an interesting point. I think uh, Cleon was a, a star hitter on that team. Uh, he, he might have thought that Cleon uh, was somebody that he could do that to or go out and talk to him and pull him off the field, and Cleon, it wouldn't affect him the rest of the year. Um, I, you know, I can't get into Gil's mind right now, and, and, and I, I just don't know. But, uh, again, I just want to reiterate that Gil was a very tough, tough guy, and you didn't want to mess with him, and you didn't want to, to, to do anything to make him, uh, make him angry at you. And, and I think everybody respected him for that. And I just think there was a, a, a subtle message there. But, you know, the thing about it is, it was a bang-bang play. Who knows if Gil sat there for a second and said, you know, I think I'm going to walk out to the left field. I'm going to bring Cleon in, and guys better get a message from that. I think it was an instinct that Gil had. He didn't like what he saw. And uh, he got an explanation from Cleon that I guess he accepted. And he didn't want Cleon to get hurt anymore, and he brought him in, and he, he put somebody else out there. So I'm assuming that's what happened. This is a team that Hodges felt could do better than it had, but it was a team that had never come close to 500 before. At what point in the season did you think to yourself, wait a second, we might have something here? Well, you know, again, we're middle of August. We're still nine games behind the Cubs who had a terrific team. That's the National League East. That was the first year of division play. And so I don't think anybody in the middle of August thought that we were now going to overrun the Cubs. I think we were playing better baseball. And, and, and I think we thought we were, I think most of us thought we were competitive. Listen, we went out there most of the time with a top pitcher in, in baseball pitching for us, and we had a terrific defense from Jerry Grody behind the plate to Harrelson, Boswell, Weiss, and Tommy Agents in our field. You win with pitching and defense and timely hitting. And so I think we all felt we were competitive, but still nine games behind the Cubs. And, and I think once we started to win some of these close games, and, and every series at that point seemed like it was, there was drama. Packed houses at Shea, even on the road. I mean, the crowds were starting to get into it, even though we weren't you know, in first place at, the point, at that point. But there was a sense, I really feel there was a sense of us being in a position to really play a lot better than we had been playing up to that point. And, and really, the rest is history. It wasn't so much the Cubs played bad baseball. We just played great baseball. And we just overtook them. And I think we finished eight or nine games ahead of them. So that's a difference of, what, 18 games in, in, in the course of a month and a half. 
But it's interesting, you write about this team that has a quiet confidence, unlike the cocky confidence of the 86 team. Where, where did that come from? And this is a losing ball club. Where does that confidence come from? And how important was it overcoming that deficit? I think it came from the fact that the guys were having better years than they had the year before. They were getting production out of second base. They were getting production out of third base. Uh, when Grody didn't play, J.C. Martin jumped in and was doing a pretty good job. And if you look at the stats between myself and Ron Soboda in right field, it's you know a lot of home runs and a lot of RBIs. So 20, he was twenty-four home runs and ninety-nine RBIs. Yeah, he was getting it's the most. Of, from the yeah, right he was yep. getting the most out of out of all his players, and I think. I think we knew where we stood with him. We came to the ballpark knowing we were going to play or we weren't going to play. It was frustrating. It was. I had a great series against Atlanta uh, in that three-game sweep in the playoffs and didn't start the first game of the World Series. It was all frustrating, but I accepted it because it was working. And, um, and it, maybe it hurt me in the long run in my career, but the reality of it was we all pulled for each other and we all were hoping that everybody would do good because at this point, we're really starting to believe that we are a team that can win and win better than we did years before. I still don't think at that point we knew that we were going to overtake the Cubs and you know go on to beat the, the Braves and then, of course, beat a terrific Baltimore Orioles team. But, but there were signs right then, and, and, and Gil had this confidence in us. And then again, I think really we tend to forget that we had great pitching. Any given day, Seaver was going to pitch a shutout or a one-hitter, and Kuzman at that point was as good as any pitcher, second pitcher on a team in baseball. Then you had Gary Gentry in the third, and then you had Jim McAndrew was having a pretty good year. You had Nolan Ryan, you had Tug McGraw, you had Don Cardwell, you had Cal Kuntz, you had Ron Taylor in the bullpen. So, uh, you know, uh, speaking strictly from a baseball point of view, we knew we had guys that could play. It was just finding ways to win those close games that we somehow would blow in extra innings or in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. We were all young, really. We grew. We all grew together as a team. Uh, we only had a couple guys in their 30s at that point, and I think really it was a, a matter of a mind mind over matter to say, for again, lack of a better word, where we just started to believe. And again, it was a strong influence of Gil Hodges as manager. And Eric, you weren't there in '69. You've talked to a lot of these guys. What did you see as the ingredient that took this mostly young group of guys? that they were able to not worry about history, mm -hmm. not worry about how good the Cubs were. They focused. What, what, did, what did you see with this group? Oh, almost to the man, they refer to Gil, Gil Hodges. They, he was the difference, you know, former Marine, war hero, and he just changed the whole dynamic of the ball club. I mean, we interviewed practically everybody um, that was associated with the team, not just the players that played. And everyone felt that. And I think that was the most significant um, change in the dynamic of the team. I think in that first year in 68, Gil was kind of feeling things out. Then he realized what the heck he had. And, you know, when you are able to draft Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, uh, Nolan Ryan, um, and then you're able to make some astute trades for Don Clendenin, uh, who, who was key. And then you, you had the veteran calming presence of an Ed Charles, which cannot be overstated enough. Um, and, um, and ironically, and perhaps fittingly, uh, his last major league game was that fifth game of the 69 series with that iconic photo 
of him running out to the mound, arms spread with that thousand watt smile. Uh, that was his last game. And so you, you had a cast of char characters and they just gelled. They were all so different. You know, everyone that we interviewed, different personalities, different backgrounds, different skill sets. Uh, but they just melded and Gil Hodges was maybe the only guy on the face of the earth that could make it all work. And it all worked pre pretty quickly. You know, I want to digress for a second to talk about Ed Charles. This is a guy who had a link in history to Jackie Robinson. And if you could just explain that. Eddie, Eddie Charles, in all the years I played baseball, is probably one of the most respected players I've ever been around. He was the calming influence in the locker room. We had some bizarre characters on that team from from Clendenin, Don Clendenin to Kuzman to Tug McGraw to some quiet guys like Ron Taylor and Jim McAndrew and and uh, and uh, Cal Kuntz. But, but the locker room was typical like many locker rooms or clubhouses, I should say. Um, guys screaming across at each other, you know, making fun of things. But Eddie Charles was a calming influence of that team. And, and he, had, he had done so much as a player, had worked so hard to get to the big leagues. His story is one of a true uh, miraculous effort to get to the big leagues and, and sad in a lot of ways because he went through these perils to try and get to the next level and the next level and had to go through all the the problems that they had back then when he the started. The segregated South. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, and when he got to the big leagues, he appreciated every moment. But he was... He was such a calming influence on the team. I, 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 for the life of me, I'm not sure why they, they, they let him go in after we won the World Series. He was 35 at the time. I believe he could have played another couple of years. But what he gave to the clubhouse is you can't, you can't describe and you can't, you can't really put a, put a finger on it other than to know that he was, he was the calming influence. If you had a bad day or the team was struggling, Eddie was, was such a... a outgoing, gregarious kind of guy where he would find some, some solace in explaining to you that uh, life goes on. It's not the end of the world. I've, I've been through this. I've done this. And I, 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 when he died, it was a, a real blow to all of us who were part of that team because he had this, this calming effect on everybody. He was a poet. He wrote a lot of poetry, and uh, and he used to dress right next to Don Clendenin, who was just the opposite. Clendenin would tell you how ugly you looked in your uniform and scream at you across the room, and Eddie would say, "Ah, oh, don't listen to him. Calm down. Go out. Swing the bat." You know. But Eddie was a guy who, as a kid, was inspired by seeing Jackie Robinson, and saw what the future could hold for him. Well, exactly, and, and, and I'll let Eric tell the story about you. There's that photo that we see of him kind of jumping up and smiling when we won the World Series, and, um, and there's, a, there's a story behind it, and I'll let Eric sure. tell the story. Yeah, uh, our first interview for this book was with Ed Charles at his apartment, and he was dying. I mean, he was not doing well, but he gave us an afternoon... Neither one of us will ever forget. And Art has stayed, stayed in touch with him over the years. For me, it, it was living history. And so we asked him, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind in that iconic photo, arms spread out, you know, running towards uh, Kuzman and Grody, the celebration on the mound with that big smile? And he said, I was thinking about Jackie. And I was thinking to myself, Jackie, we did it.
That is something. Because when he would listen to the World Series on the radio, well, even before that, I'm, I mean, he, he was from Florida, and when Jackie was coming up, he, he was training in Florida. So Ed would go to the games and couldn't afford a ticket, but he would, you know, hang out on the scoreboard or, or you know, wherever he could just get a glimpse of Jackie Robinson, who he idolized. And um, he worshipped him, and, and he, he kept pulling for Jackie. And then in 1955, when the Dodgers won the World Series, Ed, Ed Charles would, was overjoyed. And so when he won, he said, Jackie, we did it. Amazing. You know, 69 was this remarkable season and got so much attention for the Mets. But there was a lot going on in the world. Vietnam, Woodstock, civil rights unrest, all these things swirling, this cauldron out there. What role do you think the Mets played, and were you aware of what was going on? Well, we were all aware, but we were baseball players, so the stadium was our 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 castle, so to speak, and and I, all of us were aware. That was also we should mention that was the year the Jets won the Super Bowl. We won, and then the Knicks won in May of '70. So you had three teams all winning for the first time, which was great for sports in New York. But I think we collectively, as a team, um, because of where we had come from as a team in the early years of being known as the lovable losers, and uh, really a bad team for the most part, uh, that. To, to go ahead and win the World Series against a terrific Baltimore Orioles team. But as you mentioned, I think the other thing that's really important is that in an era that was one of the darkest periods in our history, war in Vietnam was tearing this country apart. We had assassinations. We had the city of New York going under financially, uh, socially, spiritually. Um, so many strikes going on in the city. I, I, my first book, Magnificent Seasons, I, I tried to do timeline events talking about those three teams. I couldn't find any good news. I, there was no good news. It was maybe the walk on the moon and Woodstock for all intents and purposes. But it was all bad news. You couldn't even. As, I'll just give you a quick example. When the when the when the Knicks won their championship, uh, I think it was May eighth in nineteen seventy. Three days before they won, you had the shootings at Kent State, right. where where our National Guard shot and killed five students and I wound. I think they wounded nine. I mean that was what's going on in the world. And I think. What we did collectively as a team, we made people feel better about their lives for a brief period of time. And, and, and I can't tell you that when, I, when somebody comes up to me and tells me that or somebody who was in Vietnam says to me, you know, I was in the worst place in the world and I heard you guys on the radio or I heard you guys won, I, I fired off my weapon and you made me feel better about, about where I was. I said, how do, you, how do you beat that when somebody tells you that you've affected their life in a positive way. And I think we as a team, the 69 Mets, made a lot of people feel better about their lives. And they have passed that on to their children and their grandchildren, some who weren't even born at the time, but know about that team because of these stories their parents or grandparents have told them. And I think those two things are really uh, what, what really resonates with fans who follow that team and still remember that team. Is that your World Series? Yeah. Right? Can you all hold it up? Sure. <laughs> so I want to ask you, you're a, a, a ball player. You played eight years, right? Yeah. Not a superstar. Well, I played 13 total. Okay. Eight years in the not, not a superstar. How did this World Series, how did that ring change the trajectory of your life? My life changed October 16th, 1969. There's no doubt about it. I am still in New York because of it. All the things that I have done in my life... Uh, 
uh, for all intents and purposes are because I played on that team. I played 13 years. Nobody ever talks about the other 12. It's really about 1969. When they see my name or they hear that I played on that team, everybody wants to know about either the black cat running on the field, Tom Seaver's almost perfect game, um, Cleon Jones situation, Tommy Agee's two great catches in the World Series, Ron Svoboda's great catch, uh, catch in game four. It's always about 1969. So there's no doubt, uh, and I always get people saying to me, don't you wish you were playing now making all that money? And I say, what are you, crazy? Of course, but the reality is that would I change it for this ring that I wear? And, and ha having had the opportunity to play against and with some of the greatest players in the history in the game. And when I came up with the Reds, I played with the Frank Robinson and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Tony Perez. And, all the great pitchers and players, Mays, Aaron, Clemente, and so I got a chance to play with and against those guys. And then the, the topper is being part of that team that lives on forever. It, that, that team will never die because stories might get stretched out. Those home runs might have gone 600 feet, and they might have barely made it over the fence, but it, there are stories about that team that will live forever. And, and, and we get the, because it's the 50th, it adds to this situation. But if it was the 30th or the 40th, people would still be talking about 1969 because it was such a special year. You know, I'm going to ask you uh, what might be a hard question or maybe not. You're 77. You really? Uh, no. Yeah. You sure Yeah, about I'm that? sorry. I thought it was 67. I, I cut you. We can count the ring. I thought it was 67. the ring. You get together with the Harrelson and Seaver and Swoboda and Kuzman, and you're looking back. It, what is it like to know this was 50 years ago? How many times am I going to see these guys again? Is that, what is that like for it's you? It's a little scary. It really is. I, there's no doubt about it. It's bittersweet in a sense. And, and, uh, and, and some of the guys I see more than others. Buddy, I don't see as much now, but he's in the area because he's been diagnosed with uh, beginning uh, Alzheimer's. And, and Eddie Cranepool I see a lot because we do a lot of things together. But you know, Kuzman and, and, and Swoboda and, and some of the guys that, uh, that I miss seeing, and, and you, you always wonder, is this, are you going to see him again? You get to a certain point. Like I said, we lost 10 guys on that team. I think, generally speaking, everybody seems to be okay. I know Gary Gentry has had some problems, and I think most, most of the guys have had some problems. But you get to a point in your life where, where you have these memories. You have phenomenal time in your life that, that you don't want to end. And I'm lucky because I'm here in New York, and a lot of people talk to me about it. The guys who live outside of the, this area probably don't get it as much because, uh, you know, they just don't have that fan base coming up to them. But... Uh, I, I really tell, I must tell you, it's, it's bittersweet in a sense because uh, as you read the last couple chapters in the book, it's, 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 uh, the book is a lot about aging and it's a lot about seeing friends and maybe not seeing them again and seeing guys that you, you, uh, you lost with and you won with. And, and, and so um, um, to answer your question, it, it's, it's bittersweet. And, and, uh, but uh, those moments are precious that you get a chance to talk about. And like I said, sometimes you tell some lies. You know that home run? Remember that home run I hit that went 500 feet? But, but they're good lies. As Tom Seaver told us, they're good lies. And, That's right. uh, and so um, uh, I'm so happy to have been part of that team. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping everybody is around when they do this reunion in June out at City Field. It'll be very special for all of us who are part of that team. And, uh, and uh, again, um, I played 13 years, and the other 12, for all intents and purposes, are not important. Well, 
For sports book, there is a lot of poignancy and a lot of wistfulness here, and, it, and you get the inside story of the 69 Mets, but you get the, the human component. These are human beings playing a sport they love, who want to win, and somehow there was that dynamic and that chemistry which led to that ring. Fascinating book, Art Shamsky, Eric Sherman. Thank you so much. The book is After the Miracle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our favorite government operative turned bookseller who can't seem to retire, Cotton Malone, is back in the Malta Exchange, the new thriller from Steve Barry. He spoke with our Pat Farnack about the trouble Malone finds himself in this time around. What inspired the Malta Exchange? Was it geography, history, religion? All three. All okay. three of those, uh, and particularly the island of Malta itself. It's uh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. It's a living history museum. It's like going back in the 16th century. And I've, I've been wanting to do a novel there for years, and now I've, I've, I did it. And I've, there's a really cool treasure hunt that takes place there that incorporates a lot of the elements that are there. The church, the co-cathedral in Valletta is one of the most beautiful churches, if not the most beautiful church in the world, and it figures prominently in the story. The Malta Exchange also revolves around the Pope and the power of the papacy, and it's fascinating to me about how the Catholic Church has been immersed in scandal forever. The current crisis with priests and the the sex abuse scandal is terrible, but it isn't anything new. No, and, and this this is not a book uh, about destroying the Catholic Church or some secret that's going to bring the Catholic Church down and destroy it. In fact, just the opposite of that. The antagonists in this novel want to preserve the Catholic Church. They want it to keep going. They do not want it to be hurt in any way. But you're right, the Church has suffered through enormous amounts of scandal. But one thing history has shown the Catholic Church is very resilient. It has not survived 2,000 years by being dumb, and it will adjust, and it will modify, and it will continue to go on. And this book deals with a conclave and some interesting aspects of a conclave uh, and some things that readers might be surprised to know. Well, getting back to your story, your, your hero, Cotton, has to foil a plot in which an imposter wants to become Pope. And stories about imposters trying to get into the papacy abound, and this is a great one. Yeah, I I put a little extra twist to it this time. Uh, There have been some interesting stories over the centuries about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What a lot of people don't realize is that anyone can be Pope. Anybody. You don't even have to actually necessarily be a Catholic. Anyone can be selected Pope. But since the 14th century or so, it's always been one of the cardinals. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what happens, you know, if the rules get changed a little bit, or they're modified, or they're or they're manipulated? It always fascinated me. The conclave is totally secret. That works great on one respect, but it also allows a great freedom of movement for a lot of other things too that could happen. And this novel explores all of that, and uh, and Cotton gets caught up in it. And there's a great climactic, you know, the last hundred hundred twenty pages of the book take place inside the Vatican, with uh, some pretty interesting stuff that goes on. Surely. And what about the spy network within the Vatican? Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, the entity is real. In fact, the Vatican Intelligence Service may be one of the best intelligence services in the world. It is certainly one of the oldest, if not the oldest, intelligence service in the world. It was created in the time of Elizabeth I. The Vatican never speaks about it. It's had many names. Its current name is called the Entity. It's run by a cardinal. It's totally secret. And it exists. And you're going to learn all about it in the novel. So many modern-day people are are moving away from the church. What, if anything, is replacing faith, in your view? Well, 
that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if anything is replacing faith, to be honest with you. There's a fine line between faith and religion. You know, faith is one thing. Religion is totally separate. Religion is created by man. Faith is something that's inside of you. What's replacing it is really little to nothing, to be honest with you. If you either have it or you don't. And in modern day, it's, it's challenging because... And I think a lot of that is the blurring of the line between faith and religion. That's, you know, there's a, as I said, there's a big, big difference. This book, again, doesn't deal with faith much at all. Faith is a totally separate thing. This book deals with religion, man-made, man-controlled, man-everything. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's what fascinates me. It is a perfect time, though, for your novel. You use a quote by Pope Francis, which really is a radical quote to come from a pope, uh, talking about how one can be spiritual but not religious, that it's it's not necessary to go to church and give money. That's certainly a departure Mm -hmm. to hear from a pope. He's very, uh, I mean, what he says makes perfect sense. Yes. And and like he said, some horrible things have been done in the name of God over the centuries, and they have. Millions of people were slaughtered in the name of God. And, you know, again, there's that religion again. So that quote is a fascinating. Interesting thing about that quote, the Vatican has backpedaled on it a million times. There's several different versions of the quote out there that have been put out to get great create confusion to it. But it's still, in its original form, the first time that he said it, you know, he made it very clear that you don't really need all this to believe in God. And he's got a point. (laughs) You seem to have a bigger purpose to discuss in in telling your story this time, and it it certainly, after you put the Maltics change down, it, it makes you think. Primary goal of my of my writing is to entertain you. I'm a novelist. My job is to entertain you, and you have a good, fun ride. Now, along the way, if I can get you thinking, okay, that's an added bonus. And this book does raise some interesting questions from a historical context, some things that I'm sure the readers are completely unaware of. And if it gets you thinking about it, that's all the more the better. But I hope when they get done, they're going to say, boy, that was a lot of fun. That was pretty cool. Well, I know this reader did. <laughs> it was a, a great ride. Great Thanks. ride. What are you working on now? Next book is finished. You stay a year ahead in the book business. So it's <laughs> the next Cotton Malone venture. I turn it in shortly. It's called The Warsaw Protocol. It's going to deal with Poland. I've been wanting to do a book with Poland for a long time. And Cotton is going to get caught up with a, a, a really cool adventure in Krakow and in Poland and something very interesting from Polish history. So that book is done and uh, it'll come out next year. I love Poland. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. And I've been wanting to, to put it in a novel for a long time. Uh, the salt mines outside of Krakow are going to figure very much into the novel. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting uh, adventure that Cotton gets caught up in. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, is that guy ever going to be retired, fully retired? Nope. God, I, I hope not. <laughs> I, hope, I hope he goes forever, God bless his soul. Uh, I quit aging him about six or seven books ago, so yeah. he's not aged at all in the last seven, eight, in a while. I stopped the aging process in him, so he will always remain around uh, just short of 50, and I hope I hope he keeps going for a long time. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it. And uh, I said the book's out there in stores now everywhere, and they can check it out there. They can check me out at uh, steveberry.org. Preparar was the former U.S. attorney for the U.S. Southern District of New York, that is, until he was fired by President Trump. But his new book isn't about that. 
Instead, he's written a book that's been described as part memoir, part guidebook. It's called Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. He spoke with our Peter Haskell this week. Describe what the rule of law is and what concerns you have about what's happening now. The rule of law is a general concept that I think we've lost sight of in recent years. One of the reasons I wrote the book was we have this time where everybody talks about Trump and everyone talks about the subversion of the rule of law and everyone talks about alternative facts and you have people like his personal lawyer saying truth isn't truth and uh, you know, the, the law is used sometimes as a bludgeon against critics as opposed to some force to make sure that justice is done. So I thought I'd take a step back and lead people through a, an examination of what the rule of law means, what justice means, what truth means, what evidence means, what expertise means um, by telling stories about how you know a lot of the unsung heroes in my office in case after case after case, whether you're talking about mafia cases or terrorism cases or cyber cases or public corruption cases, how they go about making sure they uphold the rule of law, which means, among other things, that you base your law enforcement decisions uh, not on how powerful someone is, not on whether or not their politics agrees with yours, but on whether or not they have done something wrong, and it's in the interest of justice to pursue it. So I think those concepts, it's worth taking a step back and looking at more carefully than we have in a while. You have a president who writes and says and tweets things that seem to undermine the Department of Justice, uh, the judiciary, the FBI, the CIA. What is the impact of these things? No, I think I think that remains to be seen. I think the uh, the long term impact hopefully is minimal. I think it has an impact on people who are already on his side, who like to think that the president can do no wrong and that his allies can do no wrong. So it maybe causes them to have a loss of faith in all those institutions you say that he criticizes. With respect to what impact it has on the people he's maligning every day, it probably doesn't feel great. It's probably not helpful. But I think the professionals that I know from the Southern District and elsewhere, they keep their head down, they do their job. The judges that I know, they keep their head down, they do their job. Um, and it doesn't matter if the president likes what they're doing or, not, or doesn't like what they're doing. You know, their, their dedication is to the Constitution and to their public oath of office. And they'll keep doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's not pleasant. It's not nice. But the professionals in the Department of Justice, I know pretty well. I think they just keep doing their job. If the president questions the credibility of these independent government agencies and an agency determines something one way or another and people say, well, this agency's not credible, is there a risk? Yeah, there is. There's, there, there's a risk every time the president decides not based on principle. I mean, look, every institution should be open to criticism. You know, your industry, journalism, media, uh, my former industry, law enforcement, uh, the White House, the Justice Department, they all should be subject to criticism. The problem is when it's completely unprincipled and it's done, uh, you know, for, for personal reasons and political reasons and is based on false premises and false facts, yeah, then that, then that is a problem because it will cause other people, if it's effective, to maybe follow in his footsteps, and that, I think, would be, would be a terrible legacy for him to leave. I want to ask you about the Mueller probe. There have been a number of filings. Based on what we know so far, do you have a sense of how far along we are and, and how damaging is this to the president based on what we know? Well, so that's a great question, <laughs> one that people ask every day. And the predictions about this change from day to day, and it depends on, you know, what what the, the current intelligence gathering is. Very recently, people have been reporting breathlessly that it's going to end any moment. I got a lot of calls to be on standby to talk about the report because people thought it was happening literally that day. That was two or three weeks ago. 
On the one hand, you have Andrew Weissman, who's the top deputy to Special Counsel Mueller, who has announced he's stepping down. That would indicate maybe it's wrapping up. And on the other hand, you have Paul Manafort's right-hand uh, deputy, Rick Gates, who is an official known to Donald Trump. And the special prosecutor said they're going to delay that person's sentencing, Rick Gates' sentencing, for another 60 days because he continues to cooperate in a number of investigations. That would seem to indicate it's not happening anytime soon. On the question of what it's going to say, you know, in some ways your guess is as good as mine. I think it could run the gamut from being, you know, very damaging to the president to being, you know, not more damaging than the information we already have. If this does not implicate the president all this time, this effort, this money, this attention, what does that mean? How will that impact the way people look at the world and politics these days and government? I think the way people should look at it is that a job was well done and was fairly done. And as I read in the book, look, sometimes you judge a place based on the cases that they bring, but also on the cases they don't bring. You know, Mueller's job was not to get the president, not to nab the president, not to, you know, no matter what, make sure that you take the president down. That was not his job. His job was to get to the truth, to find out what happened in the election in 2016, to see if along the way other crimes have been committed. He's charged a number of people. He's convicted a number of people. Paul Manafort is going to prison for a substantial period of time for serious crimes done over a number of years. And if that's all there is, that's still very substantial. And I would hope that people would accept whatever findings and conclusions Robert Mueller puts forward. How much of this should be made public? The the Mueller report goes to the Attorney General. He decides what goes to Congress. How much of this should be in the public domain? Well, I think with respect to everything relating to the president, it should all go to Congress because they have a constitutional function to to check the president and to and to oversee various things. And they have the ability, if there's been a considerable showing of of, uh, of abuse and misconduct, to perhaps bring impeachment proceedings. I'm not prejudging that. Maybe that should happen. Maybe it shouldn't happen. But I think given all the time and expenditure that has gone on, that Congress should, you know, some of them, having held in abeyance their own investigations of, this, of these matters, uh, in deference to Bob Mueller, I think they should get the fruits of the investigation so they can decide within their constitutional duty what is right or what is not right for them to do. Uh, with respect to some other people who may have been uh, in the crosshairs of the, of the Mueller team, if there's derogatory information about them that's in the report, I think there's a legitimate question about uh, what information about them should be made public, especially if they're not being charged. The Southern District of New York is also very active. You've got Michael Cohen, the Trump organization, the inaugural, the Trump Foundation. What is your sense about the president's the, the jeopardy to the president based on Southern District versus Mueller? Is he more vulnerable? He's more vulnerable in the sense that the Southern District is not circumscribed in what it can look at. You know, when I was the U.S. attorney there, we looked at criminal activity that we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was in the interest of justice to prosecute, no matter who you are, no matter where you were from, no matter who you're affiliated with. And you know, that culture of aggressiveness and independence and also d deliberateness is something I talk a lot about in the book. You, you get to hear about the culture of the place, the philosophy of the place, some of the personalities in that place. And so, you know, unlike perhaps in some other places where people might be cowed, they will not be. They're aggressive and they're fearless, and they try as best they can to do what I and my predecessors used to say was the, the gold standard, which is do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons, no matter what. Based on what we know now, is there any sense to you that the president has broken the law? Well, I just go by what the court filings have been. And Michael Cohen, his former personal lawyer, has said on the record in connection with a guilty plea, 
you know, where he admitted to a crime, a federal crime of campaign finance uh, violation, that he committed that crime in coordination with and at the direction of individual one, who's the president of the United States. He said it. He said it under oath in connection with pleading guilty. The court accepted it. And the Southern District of New York, in a court filing, also endorsed that. Those are three statements at a minimum of a, of a finding that the president uh, conspired to or aided and abetted a crime. You were fired by the president who replaced you with Jeffrey Berman. Do you have any question in your mind about his independence? I don't, and, and one of the reasons you know that, I don't know him personally uh, before he became the U.S. attorney, but uh, he recused himself, according to reports, from anything having to do with the Michael Cohen investigation and case. So, you know, he followed the ethics rules, uh, seems to have been doing that honorably and well, and I've heard nothing to indicate that he's anything other but honest and honorable uh, and will do the right thing by the Southern District of New York. We've got these questions about security clearance for the president's relatives, questions about Putin. What is your sense of the president's involvement, and, and what does that say to you? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a running theme of the book. You know, when the president decides to order over the objections of career people a high-level security clearance for his son-in-law or for some other people, people will respond and say, well, he has the authority to do so. Well, that's true in a lot of places. You know, reporters may have the authority to destroy someone's life based on nothing and based on fabrication. Uh, Prosecutors have the authority to bring lots and lots of cases, even if the interests of justice are not served. If everybody did everything that they had the authority to do lawfully, we'd be living in a hellscape. And I describe some of those examples in the book. What I think it says is the president abuses his power in a particular way that doesn't give confidence to intelligence officials about how, how carefully... He takes into account national security. And there's a reason you have certain rules about security clearance. There's a reason why you have certain traditions with respect to security clearance and how international relations are conducted. You know, it, it, it may be the case that the president himself wouldn't have been able to get a security clearance. He's exempted because we want our president, no matter how problematic in a national security sense, has the, the latest access to the most classified information to keep us safe. But that does not mean... If you care about uh, you know, proper process and you care about uh, the protection of, of the country and you care about concerns of, of blackmail or sabotage or anything else, that he should be able to do anything he wants. One last question. The president asked you to resign. You did not. You were fired. Why did you not resign? Well, because I was in a peculiar situation. The president asked me personally to come uh, visit with him when he was the president-elect at Trump Tower on November 30th of 2016. And he personally asked me to stay on, praised me, praised my office, uh, and I agreed, even though it was an extraordinary thing. I did not expect to stay on. It was within his discretion to have me stay on. I did. Later, it was in his discretion to let me go, which he did, and I abide by that. But on the day that uh, I and others were asked to submit their resignation, I wanted clarity that it was coming from the person who looked me in the eye, shook my hand, and said, I want you to stay, so that if it was for nefarious reasons, if it was uh, for some you know, purpose that wasn't pure, I wanted the record to reflect that the man who told me to stay now wanted me to go. I didn't want it to be some flunky intermediary acting, you know, uh, functionary at the Justice Department uh, summarily asking for a letter of resignation. I wanted to know it was coming from the president himself. And once I understood that it was and that he was firing me, I left. Preparar, thank you. Thanks very much. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Special thanks to Peter Haskell, who did double duty this week. And special thanks to you, too, for listening to us. It's been 100 episodes. Hopefully you've been around for all of them. 
Next time around, we'll introduce you to the only woman ever to create a classic movie monster. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.